Listen to me, Montag. Once to each fireman, at least once in his career, he just itches to know what these books are all about. He just aches to know, isn't it so? Well, take my word for it, Montag. There's nothing there. The books have nothing to say. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Take Me to Your Reader, discussing adapted science fiction at its best and worst. I'm Seth. I'm James. And I'm Colin. And this time we have with us again Phil Nichols from the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies to help us talk about Fahrenheit 451. It is 50 years since the adaptation came out, and so it's a good time to talk about it. And also, Phil is working on something that I think ties in just slightly with Fahrenheit 451. So, Phil, why don't you, uh, by the way, welcome, of course, and uh, why don't you. you tell us what you're working on? Yeah, well, I'm working on two things, actually. I'm just in the very final stages of editing the new Ray Bradbury Review, which is uh, an annual journal that comes from the centre. And that issue is all about Fahrenheit 451, and that should be out in October. And I'm also writing up my PhD thesis, uh, which is due to be handed in by the end of September. Do we dare oh, ask what the topic is? for? Uh, uh, yeah, Ray Bradbury. Uh, in all of his <laughs> in all of his media forms, I've been enjoying on Facebook when you've posted the you know the books that you're currently uh, looking at. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's some pretty detailed stuff. So. <laughs> so now the the new Ray Bradbury review, the topic this time kind of is the film adaptation and the book. Yes, um, specifically because the film is fifty years old. It was my idea to have an issue um, looking at the film. When you, when you put together something like that, you're kind of at the mercy of um, the submissions that you get from people who want to be included um, in the journal. So when you set out on it, you don't know exactly where it's going to go. Um, but all the articles we've got are about the film in relation to the book in some way. So it, it's going to be a, quite a tight little issue, really. Nice. And when does that come out? It's, I checked on the publisher's website yesterday, and it's due out towards the end of October. It's okay. it's it's a an academic journal, so it's a little bit expensive for what it is. I think it's about twenty five dollars, and it's a paperback. Yeah. It's about one hundred and twenty pages, something like that. So it's a little bit expensive for what it is, but it's the kind of thing that um, your local friendly librarian should be able to obtain for you. Right, right. Or somebody, uh, one one of us can get it and donate it to the library. <laughs> yeah, why not? Why not? As might happen. <laughs> um, I. I've seen that there's an, an electronic copy of it as well that you can order, so you don't have to get the paperback version. But that's harder to donate to a library, as Collins found out. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it, it turns out that the library's DRM management system requires that you purchase everything through them. Uh, so yeah. if you buy if you buy ebooks outright from authors who sometimes sell, or if you go through uh, Humble Bundle or one of the other. Um, you know, mass ebook sellers, you can't transfer those licenses, and they can't import them anyway. Hmm. That's that's the brave new world that we live in. But uh, we don't want to get Colin started on on DRM. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's, Phil. We just kind of want to do some some questions for you before we get started talking about about the book or the movie. Okay. I I was going to drop into the show notes a link to your Bradbury Media site um, where you had mm. you had a, a nice tribute to him for 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 Ray's birthday recently. Um, and yes. just kind of going through some some reasons that people sh that he's still relevant, that he should still be read. Um, <laughs> and I wonder if you'd like to talk about some of that. I, I I'm sorry, it's spur of the moment. I didn't uh, give yeah. you a chance to prepare. You, you'd think I, I would be well prepared for that, wouldn't you? Having, as you say, just written about it a few days ago. <laughs> um, I, that's one of those blog posts that I kind of made up on the spur of the moment. 
and it was just things okay. that came into my head at the time. But um, uh, for me, um, why he's so relevant is, and I don't think I put this in the blog post particularly, is that he's he's always talking about um, issues that are relevant in our real world. Uh, unlike a lot of science fiction writers who get bogged down in um, technology and therefore become outdated very quickly, he tends to talk in more poetic term- terms about things. Hmm. Um, so when he talks about the death of the book, it's still relevant to us today, especially in a, in a world of ebooks where you know text is still important, but it's no longer in that physical form necessarily. Right. Um, I can imagine some other authors might have written about that in the 1950s, and it would have become totally irrelevant and out of date. But um, Bradbury's version of it is still current. So that's that's one of the thing, one of the reasons why I think he's still important in the world we, we're in today. Yeah, I, I feel like um, one of the interesting things about kind of classic science fiction is where it may make some guesses about the future. And there's always things that come along that are, are not predicted. And, mm. um, you know, the rise of ebooks, it seems like are something that that Fahrenheit 451 doesn't necessarily take into account. But I think I think it actually can be addressed by the themes of the book where I think it is it Faber who talks about the fact that we just stopped reading. It wasn't it wasn't that everyone that they started coming around and collecting books. It was that we had already stopped reading them. We had we had already yes. moved on to the television media and, and those various mm-hmm. things. And and that's one of um Bradbury's um fairly well known quotes which keeps popping up as a meme on on the internet, which is something to the effect of you don't have to burn books to destroy a culture you just have to get people to stop reading them yeah and and that really is what fahrenheit 451 is about as a bottom line sure but in in, at the end of the book i mean shouldn't get into spoilers so soon but by the end of the book all of the book people have realized that actually it's not the physical form of the book that matters it's the content right so in that Mm -hmm. sense you could say that Fahrenheit 451 is pro ebook because it's pro any kind of text. Sure. Not to jump ahead to the movie review, but it was it was pointed out uh I think in the the preview chapter we saw from the the review that Truffaut's book or movie has no text in it. They they read the opening credits that you would normally see in a movie we, they would <laughs> see scrolling by. And I had sitting here when I watched the movie I was wondering why in the world are you doing this? And that's because <laughs> there was no text. There were numbers yeah. and there were lots of pictures and cartoons, but no no words aside from the books. Right. Yeah, the only text you ever saw was burning. It was yeah. while it was actually burning. Yeah. Except for the one time he did read the book. Yeah, and and that's a that's a really key scene in the film because we we watch his finger travel across the page word by word as he reads mm-hmm. just like a child. Uh, struggling to yeah. read something, you know. I think I think we're going to kind of spiral around both the book and the movie. <laughs> it sounds like it, doesn't it? <laughs> I do have some other questions for you, Phil, but I feel like they will they will um, fit better in context as we do the rest of the discussion. So okay, so perhaps we can move into the book itself. And uh, Phil, would you be comfortable kind of giving us some background on on where the book came from? Sure. Yeah. Um, Bradbury actually wrote it uh, originally as a shorter piece of work called The Fireman, uh, which was published in 1951 in a science fiction magazine. And then he expanded it into the version that we know today. And it's probably about three times longer 
than the original version. What the book deals with, um, as we've already said, is about uh, books and text, but it's also about the rise of electronic media. Um, and if you think of when this book was written, it was written in the 1950s. That's when television was coming in and was beginning yeah. to take over from radio. And one of the interesting things for me is that The Fireman, the first version uh, of the story, um, really had radio as the sort of the big um, evil medium that's uh, getting in the way. But when he revised right. it and turned it into the book, television was the um, the big bad monster, but not just ordinary television. Mm -hmm. He makes it this enormous thing that totally engulfs your entire house. Right. The immersive television. Yeah. And, and, and this, again, this is one of these bits where Bradbury is, um, what's the word? Um, really ahead of the game because he's anticipated in a way virtual reality. He's anticipated uh, sort of large screen televisions um, of the type that really didn't exist in the 1950s. But because he doesn't right. talk in technical terms, it doesn't feel old fashioned. It still feels as if it uh, could plausibly um, exist. Do you, do you want me to give a, a brief summary of the story uh, of Fahrenheit? Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. So the the premise of the book is that we're we're in the future. Books have become more or less illegal, and to make sure that people don't read them, we have these firemen whose job it is to go around burning books. So there's this theme of censorship that runs all the way through the book. Um, the hero of the book is Guy Montag, so he's uh, a fireman. So his job is to go around destroying the books. And one day he accidentally stumbles into this uh, girl wandering the streets who kind of makes him see things in a different way, gives him a, a more quirky view of the world and makes him think about things that he'd never thought about before. And very soon he finds himself reading these books that he's supposed to be destroying. And, and that's really the start of his journey. And then by the end of the book, he has become an avid reader and he's gone off to join uh, a community of readers who are preserving books to kind of carry us through to the the, the next iteration of civilization. Um, and in the book, kind of, it, it's not specifically said that civilization comes to an end, but the city that he's come from mm -hmm. certainly blows up in an atomic explosion. So we kind of assume that there's a big atomic war that uh, engulfs the entire world and that these book people will return culture to us uh, because they've memorized books. So all the books that have been destroyed are stored in people's heads. Um, and so there's this indication really of a, a kind of a return of oral culture. Um, just like the origins of storytelling. Storytelling originally was a, an oral tradition um, long before writing was invented, long before printing was invented. And the book kind of suggests that we could return to that as a way of carrying us over this break in civilization. So there's a lot goes on in this novel. Um, and it's a very short yeah. piece of work, really. Yeah, you could easily sit down and read it in a long afternoon. Yeah, you could. Colin, you had you had kind of a question about, is it future? Is it future? Right. Is it set in the future or is it alternate? Oh, there was, I think it was the revisionist history that they put forth. So when people stopped reading books, they decided that uh, 
they would also start burning books. And to support that idea, they went back and rewrote the history up until that point. And since there are no books, uh, you know, it was pretty easy to foster that idea. Um, on my second read through the book, I came to the, the conclusion, yeah, it's it's a revisionist history where the people right. in charge have gone back and said, oh, no, 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 we have always burnt books, all the way back to Benjamin Franklin, um, even though that the... the technology which prevented houses from catching on fire and allowed them to burn books inside the houses probably did not exist back then. <laughs> right. Well, it's interesting too, and and Phil, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the collection called A Pleasure to Burn, Fahrenheit 451 yes. Stories. Yes. Um, I've been reading through that, and I, I just, last night I finished um, Long After Midnight, and, I, and then I'm, I'm kind of halfway through The Fireman. And it's okay. it's very interesting. Some of the stories are kind of only peripherally connected to the world of Fahrenheit 451. But as yeah. you get further in, you, you meet the character of Montag and you, you kind of can see the evolution of the story. Um, because for instance, in Long After Midnight, it's not a Bible that he, that he accidentally takes from the lady's house. It's Shakespeare. Mm. And it's, it's interesting to see it kind of, kind of move along like that. Um, where the story changes subtly each time, because then in the fireman, it's it's the Bible. But in yes. both of those, when when um, it's Leahy in those stories instead of uh, Beatty or Beatty, Beatty, yeah, yeah, um, Beatty. Bradbury himself pronounces it differently than I would. Oh, <laughs> wait, how, how does he pronounce it? Beatty, Beatty, or something. I can't remember. I was listening to the audio. It's it's sort of Beatty the way he says it. Beatty. It sort of almost rhymes with deity. Which is it's a very peculiar pronunciation. Yeah, it is. So in the in both Long After Midnight and The Fireman, when when the captain is giving kind of the history of the fireman, he says it goes back to the Civil War. And then in Fahrenheit four five one, they trace it all the way back to Ben Franklin. And it's yeah. it's interesting to watch that evolution by reading those stories. Of course, what you have to question is how much of that they would know, because if they don't have um history books, how does anyone know? You know, what, what is the medium through which the history is being conveyed? So there, there's an element of unreliability in anything that we're told. And it is true that most of what we know about the world uh, in Fahrenheit 451 comes from the fire chief. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he, for all we know, he could be making it all up. He could be a pathological liar. I don't think he is, but he could right. be because we've got no other reference point. Um, so I think that's always worth bearing in mind. But you, you're referring to um, A Pleasure to Burn, I think is is a really good place for people to look if they're curious about how Bradbury's ideas evolved. Because in Long After Midnight, The Fireman, and then in Fahrenheit 451, really what you've got there is three drafts of the same work. Um, and Long After Midnight and The Fireman are virtually identical. The, the, it's just these sort of yeah, details around the edges. Yeah. Um, but it is really interesting. I, I, I was tracking that when I was writing the, the chapter in my PhD thesis, tracking those subtle changes that he makes. I think I found that on your website, actually, where you were, you were noting the changes. Yes. And it is really interesting to see how, yeah, as you say, sometimes it's Shakespeare, sometimes it's the Bible. Mm -hmm. Something I do not know the answer to, but I would love to know whether he had any, any qualms about the idea of the Bible being a burned book, because that, that could be a really dangerous idea to, to put in his novel. But of course, he, he backs away from that. Um, there, there are lots of biblical references in Fahrenheit 451, but he doesn't yeah. 
he doesn't go there, basically. He just doesn't go there. Um, we just assume that since all books get burned, Bibles would as well. But he doesn't specifically address that issue. But in, as you say, in the earlier drafts, it, there's this big thing of th this is the last Bible in existence. And that kind of gives mm -hmm. it um, a, a magnitude which is no longer just about literature, but is kind of gets to the, um, the the cultural basis of of our civilization, you know. So he, he yeah. it's a, a big issue there, but he kind of backs away from it. Very interesting. Well, I think it's interesting to watching the the evolution of the story um, because between one of the main differences that I found between Long After Midnight and The Fireman is Faber's role and Faber's motivation because it, it mm. was a little unclear. I thought um, what what made him decide to not be a coward anymore. And in Fahrenheit 451 and in The Fireman, it's when Montag starts destroying that Bible. And that, yes. that's what kicks him out of his complacency. Yes. And that was interesting. Yeah. yeah. So so Faber's a, a, an interesting character. Um, and when we get to talking about the film, he's something that just disappears. And yeah. he's, he's one of those elements that I think people don't know quite what to do with him because um, some some of the things that um, if you think about how Faber works in the novel he's mostly there to kind of act as Montag's um, mentor but also to act mm -hmm. as his conscience because he's talking yeah. to Montag through this earpiece all the time and from a dramatic point of view that's a really clumsy thing I think from a from a point of view of a novel it's fine. But if you imagine doing that in a film or even in a stage play, that's kind of a complicated way of showing uh, Montag acting out instructions that he's being given co concurrently with, with what he's doing. It's a bit like watching a newsreader trying to read a news story while somebody's talking <laughs> through their earpiece. You know, it's a very undramatic um, mechanism. So poor old Faber. Um, often gets kind of pushed to one side when people think about um, dramatizing Fahrenheit 451. I think that's a shame because I loved what he said about um, why books are important. Yes. Uh, he gives that little three-point uh, summary of why books are important and, and how they work, that you need a texture of information and detail, you mm -hmm. need leisure time to think about what you've been reading, and yes. then you need the freedom to act upon what you have been thinking about. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And all of those are missing from that culture. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting to me too, like when um, the difference in the word leisure between, you know, the people in this society in the book, of course, have lots of leisure time. That's, that's basically all the time they have, but they don't use it for, for contemplation and conversation. They, they mm. use it to go to the fun parks and to, to watch their programs on the, on the view screen. Yes. <laughs> and drive really and drive fast. fast. <laughs> I've definitely felt like, like that, that part of the book, um, speaks to me about the difference in my reading output since I got a cell phone, since I got a smartphone, that is. Um, because there's so many times where I might be sitting someplace and when I would normally have been reading a book, I pick, out my phone and 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 look at Facebook or or play a word in word with words with friends or or something, um, yeah. And uh, I, I'm kind of disappointed in myself that that, <laughs> that I've I've done that, and I'm I'm trying to discipline myself to to get back to having that leisure time, um, like Faber talks about. Yeah. So you 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 find yourself turning into um, Mildred 
because that's what she does. Exactly. She spends all of her time uh, with the view screen or the, or the wall screen. The parlor walls, they're called, aren't they? Which is a, a nice, yeah. quaint, quaint, old-fashioned term. Yeah. It was interesting when, when Montag asked her what the programs are about, and, and she just sort of says, well, the best programs ever. You know, <laughs> she doesn't say what they're about because they're not about anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so about the smartphones. You know, there are now, like, health warnings about why you shouldn't use your smartphone as you go to bed because of the blue light and how it, it interferes with your sleep patterns. And here she was with her seashells in going to bed and there was no connection between them, you know, between husband and wife, they slept in separate beds even, mm-hmm. uh, which I think was probably more prevalent in that era than today. Yeah. Yeah. But it's emblematic too of the separation between them. Yes. And, and definitely having that, having that other presence in the room, you know, being, being whatever radio or, you know, the seashells, which by the way, nailed earbuds. Absolutely. Oh, totally. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it's all about being in the room, but also not being there. So if you're physically there, but mentally you are somewhere else. And if you think about it, really, um, when Montag is reading a book and when the other characters are reading a, a book, that is the same thing. You know, we, we talk of losing ourselves in a book. Um, True. But surely we, we are really doing the same thing when we read a book. We're transporting ourselves to another world and reading a book as Mildred says is quite an antisocial thing because we yeah. we block out everybody else and it's just us and the words on the page but obviously yeah. for Montag and for Bradbury what we're doing when we're doing with that is when we're reading a book is we're connecting with a greater mind than our than our own because we're reading right. words of wisdom written by somebody good notice of course that in fahrenheit 451 they're all great books we're not talking about trashy novels you know we're not talking about uh, jackie collins and dan brown and that kind of thing (laughs) we're talking about it's all great works of literature yeah i i will often go out to lunch and bring a book with me and then you know some percentage of the time i run into somebody that i know and they want to sit with me and I'm kind of like, oh, dang it. <laughs> I wanted to be antisocial. I wanted to connect <laughs> with a book. Yeah. And that's, I think that's an advantage that a book has over uh, electronic media. If you see a book that someone is reading and you've read that book and they're open to a conversation, then you know, you, you've now kind of bridged a gap between two strangers on a bus or a picnic table or, or wherever. Mm. Um, in electronic media, you can't do that. You just know that someone's staring at their phone or at a tablet. Right. That's a good point. Um, unless what they're doing on their phone is playing a Pokemon game and, you know, going off hunting for <laughs> for non-existent uh, creatures. Right. Yes. Although I, I read on Facebook, I think it was yesterday, where there was a, a headmaster in Belgium who came up with a, a book hunting version of Pokemon Go. Oh, the, the system works. You take a book and you seal it in a plastic bag and you hide it out in the community and you go to a particular Facebook page and you leave hints as to where it goes or where it is. And then people go out hunting for books. And when you find the book, you put a note on the Facebook page saying that you found that book and then you, you read it and, and can discuss it all on your, your post to that page. And when you're through, you go out and rehide that book and out it goes again. That's... So geocaching for books. Yeah. There, there used to be a, a few years ago, there was a thing, I think people called it book crossing, where people would deliberately just leave books in public places, knowing that somebody else would then pick it up and read it. And But of course, in that scenario, you would have no idea of where your book would end up. 
So this sounds like an interesting combination of the, that idea with um, the modern technology. So that's interesting. Yeah, it within, well, I don't know over what period of time it was, but he reported that when uh, the news article was written, that 40,000 people had subscribed to the Facebook page. Wow. wow. <laughs> um, so let's double back just a little bit and talk about any prior experiences any of us have with the book. Um, so, Phil, maybe you should bat clean up for us and, and go last. Um, so, Colin, Colin or James, do you have any prior experience with Fahrenheit 451 at all? Uh, just from high school, the mandatory reading. Mm-hmm. So you actually did read it in high school? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. The whole book? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so this is one that was assigned in one of your English classes. Correct. Okay. What, what did you think of it at that time? I actually don't remember much about it from high school besides the, the um, kind of the philosophy behind mm-hmm. it. That that's mostly what we discussed, just because its historical ramifications is very similar to, uh, you know, like Nazism and McCarthyism and censorship in general. It's it was part mm-hmm. of that whole discussion. Um, I remember liking the book because it was a quick read, and I like the ideas in inside yeah. of it. This is something that one thing that quite um, fascinates me as uh, a British person. We don't have um, Bradbury in our schools. He, you know, he's just not an author that would uh, figure on the curriculum at all. But I'm well aware that for decades he's been part of the American classroom. Um, and what's always made me a little bit uncomfortable there is that when you force somebody to read a book, they usually despise it. Um, and I know in, in my school days, I was forced to read um, Dickens, mm. which I hated. I, I don't hate it so much now, but at the time, I hated <laughs> it because you were forced to read it. And Rudyard Kipling yeah. and, and all sorts of other things that just were not of any interest. And being forced to read them just makes you hate them all the more. And that, that's the, the only thing that's kind of upsets me a little bit about Bradbury being a popular author in the US is that he's on the curriculum and therefore people are force fed him and therefore they don't like him, <laughs> you know, which, and if that, if that is true, that's a great shame. Mm-hmm. Well, so I, in my ninth grade English class, we, we read a bit of Bradbury. I don't recall that we read Fahrenheit 451, but we read some of his other stories and there were, there were some of his kind of technophobic stories. Mm. And I remember just thinking, wow, this guy is so negative, you know, about technology causing all <laughs> yeah. kinds of problems. But now kind of <laughs> being more mature and 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 reading those same kind of works, I can kind of go, yeah, okay, you know, he's not completely wrong. Yeah, um, where yeah. where our technology oftentimes leads us into trouble. Yeah. It is interesting. So there was one question that I had for you, Phil. Um I feel like there's a few places in Fahrenheit four five one that almost veer towards anti-science. I don't think they really are, but one of the characters expresses that, you know, some great liberal arts college has now been turned into an atomic energy college or or something like that. And now there's only science taught. And we've gotten into a place in our society where science illiteracy is pretty bad. Um, mm. And so I feel like we definitely need more more science. But I think really what, what Ray was going for was we need a balance. You know, we can't just teach science. We have to, we have to teach philosophy and we have to teach people how to think. So what do you, what do you think of that? I, I, I think you're right. I, I think, um, the, the whole of Fahrenheit 451 is, is a plea for, as I said before, connecting with great minds, um, th- through literature. But the, the other 
the, the other sort of um, twist to the way that Fahrenheit 451 is set up as a book is that um, it, it's not that all books are banned and that text is illegal in the novel. In the novel, they do have technical manuals. They do have um, kind of factual right. um, information that's available to them. And so in that sense, I think for Bradbury writing in the 50s, science and technology would have been part of that um, kind of practical information that would be needed for um, a civilization to just kind of tick over. So, yeah, so the, the plea of the novel is don't forget the creative stuff as well, because you need both. Um, and when we move on to talk about the film um, in a while, we can see how a, a, a different strategy is used in, in the film compared to the novel. Did, did we get so, to Colin, did, did you have any? Uh... Oh, sorry. No, I was just going to ask the same thing. Did we get to hear Colin's um, background with Fahrenheit? Uh, I am a Fahrenheit 451 newbie. I read it for the first time about a month ago, and I had never seen the movie before. Wow. Yeah. Most of my high school reading was Shakespeare and Dickens, who I, I loved, uh -huh. and uh, Madame Bovary, uh, you know, a handful of other works like that. And we didn't do Bradbury, which I'm, you know, kind of uh, feel like I missed out on, especially because my son, who is going to our local high school, uh, read Bradbury last year. <laughs> so how did you take it then? Just reading it for pleasure? now how, how did it come across to you uh boy i love the way mr bradbury writes prose it's just a delight to read and to experience the way he talks about things mm -hmm. but he describes something which was absolutely horrible to me <laughs> um <laughs> you know it was i was thinking that it was not even science fiction flavored it was more like uh stephen king horror flavored uh, a world where people don't only read but where your wife will commit suicide and the next day there's no discussion of the topic about, well, why did you take all those pills? Mm. The whole whole thing was horrific. I, I didn't like it. Was it more about kind of the lack of connection between people that was, that was horrible to you? Yeah, kind of the whole, the culture that's described. I mean, even, you know, right now in the United States, we're getting ready for our next presidential election and <laughs> news about uh, Mrs. Clinton and Mr. Trump are all over the place everywhere. They discussed politics, and the politics were, de were described like this. How could they put that short, short, ugly old man up against the tall, good-looking guy? Uh, he didn't even dress to hide the fact he was fat, and he picked his nose. <laughs> <laughs> that was the whole political discussion. And it, it talks about the lack yeah. of—I'm going right. to go back to that again—the lack of critical thinking about things. Yeah, It's all about appearances. It's all about the moment. It's all about entertainment value. And that is so much a description of today, isn't it? Right. That, is, that is the the thing that horrifies you about the book is the truth about the world that we live in. Um, you mentioned yeah. the, the wife almost committing suicide or at the very least overdosing on drugs. And that, uh -huh. I think, for, for an, a novel written in 1953 is really far forward thinking. You know, um, yeah, drug culture. I'm, I'm okay. I'm sure it existed at that time, but it would not have been a, a kind of a an everyday recreational thing. Um, but in the novel, it's presented as that. It's presented as something that is so commonplace that people don't even think about it. And when they wake up the next morning and their stomach's been pumped, they don't even stop to say, "How did that happen?" <laughs> you know, they just carry on as if nothing has happened. It's incredible. When the medics came, 
they talked about, yeah, we'll have 50 of these today. And yes. it was such a common occurrence. They don't even send doctors. They send technicians. Yeah. 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 Uh, and the, the drug use actually reminded me of the pills they had to take in, I just completely blanked on her name, but the novel is The Giver, mm-hmm. where they take pills to suppress their emotions and feelings. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that kind of brings up something that I had mentioned to you, Colin. Has I don't think, Colin, you've seen the movie. Um, oh, now I'm blanking on it. Uh, it's the Christian Bale movie. Um, <laughs> uh, American Psycho? No, 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 no. The, the, the one where it's all about suppression of uh, emotion. Okay, sorry, it's going to bother me. So yeah, well, I'll I'll talk while Seth is looking online. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> so yeah, it was you know I would read the book again. Uh, I read it twice in the space of a month, uh, and that's not something I do when I really don't like mm. things. I only read A Boy and His Dog once, and I yeah. watched the movie once, <laughs> uh, and I rejected watching advanced copies of Roller or the sequels to not even sequels, the remakes of Rollerball, just because it was so bad. Right. Mm. So it's not, it's not so much that you hate the book, is that you? I guess you don't approve of the uh, the state of things, but it's worth reading for the prose. Is it? That's kind of what I'm getting from you. Yeah, which I, which I would agree with. I, I do appreciate. I I like reading Bradbury for his prose. I I didn't really had much experience with him prior to. I mean, I read this book in for, uh, high school, but it wasn't it wasn't something I don't think I appreciated mm-hmm. at the time. And then when we started reading him again for A Sound of Thunder, and now this, I, uh, I I read quite a few of his short stories from that collection that we had for A Sound of Thunder, and I enjoyed reading his prose just because it was I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I love I still love that he wrote uh, The Sound of Summer Running. Yeah, uh, especially because we run now. <laughs> right, <laughs> Equilibrium, by the way, is that movie. Oh, no, I haven't seen that. Where they have to take pills to, to suppress emotions and you can be arrested for sense offense. And so like, lo- like possessing art is, is an arrestable oh, offense. Oh, I remember what movie you're talking about. Gunkatu. Yes. It was or Gunkatu or something like that. Gunkata, I think. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Gunkata. That's right. <laughs> but it's, it definitely feels like a spiritual sequel to, to Fahrenheit 451 in some ways. But, hmm. I've, I've not seen it. That was a really good science fiction B movie. I, yeah. Mm. I, I, I definitely recommend it. Um, but it is a little silly with the the gun kata stuff. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's it's a little B movie ish, but it's a really good B movie. <laughs> yeah. uh, where are we on the book? I mean, we, you know, we're not going to do kind of a plot march through. We've just kind of been talking right. about what what stuck out. I to think us. we had one. Yeah. So so as I mentioned, yeah. I I didn't I don't believe I read this in high school. At some point, I picked up an audio version of it, and it was not a good presentation at all, and it really turned oh, yeah. me off. I didn't I didn't enjoy the book because I couldn't connect with with the narrator um but in preparation for this i picked up the audiobook read by ray bradbury Mm -hmm. and that was very interesting because it's not the kind of fluent uh presentation that you get from a seasoned book narrator it's much more like a grandfather reading a book to his kids and so it's it's i really enjoyed it but it's very different than than a typical audiobook to me and I'm not sure when that was recorded. I don't know. I don't know, Phil, if you know that. I think around 2000, something like that. But I, I was talking to Colin a little bit about this um, before we started recording, um, and I was saying that if if it's the version I'm thinking of, uh, he's a little bit gruff and a little bit breathless in his reading because he was quite yes. old at the time of reading it. 
but there's there's something authentic about the reading, which which I think is really what you're alluding to. It's not an actor who is yeah. performing it. This is the guy who wrote it. So you you feel a slightly different connection to the text and to the reading yeah. than you would if it was an actor reading it. So yeah, I think it is quite engaging. I, f- I found that version a little bit tiring to listen to because simply because Ray sounds tired um, in parts of it. Mm. He did an, an earlier version back in the 70s, which was only, as far as I know, only ever released as an LP record. And it was sections of the novel. It wasn't the whole novel. Um, he spoke an introduction, a kind of an off-the-cuff introduction. Then he read a passage from the book. And then he told us about how he come, came to write it and what the characters meant to him. And then he reads another passage. Um and that's an interesting version to listen to if you ever get the opportunity to hear that. He's a, a much younger man um, because he would have been in his 50s when that one was recorded. And he's a lot more lively, a lot more energetic. Um, but I think he's a good reader. He, he, he reads quite a few of his books um, for audiobooks, and they're, they're usually worth a listen. Well, I was trying to determine if it was Fahrenheit 451 or 451 or 451. <laughs> and when I, when I found the, <laughs> the Bradbury narrated version of it, I, I just clicked through to the preview of it and, and saw that he said 451. So I thought, okay, that's, that's how we're supposed yeah. to do it. <laughs> It was interesting on the on the audiobook, the final disc of the audiobook, um, and I left it with Colin. Colin, did you get to listen to it? I, I did. There, there was a kind of an extended interview with Ray about the about his life and career and the how the book came about. Um, yeah. And it, one interesting thing to me was he was talking about how he had been asked by people about um, Beatty's background. How did he turn from a well-read person into the captain of the fire, the fireman, burning yeah. books? And and Ray commented that um, he's been tempted to go back and edit the book and add those parts into it that he has come up with to explain his kind of conversion. But mm-hmm. he said, he said, and here's a quote: "But that would be an act against the book to do it, and I don't believe a writer should interfere with his younger self." And I thought that was yeah. a, a really interesting perspective <laughs> yeah. on, on an author's duty to his already published works. Yeah, that, that is interesting. What's, what's really interesting about that is he, he said that kind of thing several times, but he did actually um, rewrite a lot of his stuff, including Fahrenheit, but not as a book. He wrote a play instead. And the play... Right. Is, is not an adaptation of the book. It's a kind of a retelling of the story from a different point of view. So if you want to know um, what he what he thinks about Beatty and how Beatty came to be the, the character that he is, you have to go and watch the play or read the play because the answers are in there. Right. And that was something I wanted to ask you about mm. um, because he had he also talked a bit about that um, because he he said one of the mistakes that he made in trying to adapt it to the stage was just copying from the book, and he felt like yeah. he had to more kind of sprinkle the 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 plot of the book in there, um, but make make changes as well. Yes, this this relates back to a, an earlier version of the play that he tried to write in the nineteen fifties, um, where, as you say, he he more or less, if you like, retyped the book in the format of a play um, and discovered that it didn't work to do it that way. So then he, over a number of years, he discovered that the way to do adaptation is maybe read the book, but then put the book to one side 
and then write it out of your head uh, as a play. And then when you finish the play, you go back to the book just to check whether you've missed anything out. So in that process, you'll end up with a story that is different because it will be a retelling uh, of the story and it won't be necessarily a faithful um, transcription of the original work. Right. So it, the play that's been published and the one that is performed nowadays was written in the 1970s, 1980s. So it's it's the the, the more wise Bradbury rather than the the clumsy, um, I don't know how to write a play Bradbury that he's referring to there. <laughs> sure. So I was going to use that quote as, you know, to beat on Colin with about, about see, you got to make changes, you got to make changes. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but then I found a YouTube of Ray at a convention talking about how many screenplays have been written for a remake film mm. of Fahrenheit 451. Mm. And, and at some point he's, he kind of throws up his hands and he says, just shoot the book, just shoot the book. <laughs> <laughs> so that's much more on, on Colin's side. Yeah. Yes. I wonder if that would include the screenplay he wrote in 1996. Yeah. I mean, it, it, yes, he, he was very frustrated that he, he'd written what he thought was a perfectly serviceable script and yet they then went to about 10 other writers to get new scripts and none of none of them oh, wow. were considered filmable I'm, I'm sure all of them probably were filmable but you know what hollywood is like uh, if you know if somebody takes a dislike to a certain version then they'll, they'll say no it's not good enough but yeah. Bradbury, Bradbury's script would have been fine i've, I've read it um it's pretty good and it could easily have been filmed but um, never was. Well, we've definitely seen that kind of thing happen before with um, with I Robot, where Harlan Ellison yeah. wrote a great script or a great screenplay right. that never was made into a movie. Yeah. So one thing that I find fascinating about the book is some of the uses of numbers. Um, in kind of in early parts of the book, after he's met Clarice, there's I think two different parts where he says like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven days. Um, and it's an interesting way to, to note the passage of time. And I couldn't figure out if it meant literally a week or if it was supposed to just indicate time upon time. And I, I don't know if anybody else noticed that. You know me. I lended toward the literal interpretation. Mm. <laughs> what do you think, Phil? I'm struggling to remember that section. I'm, I'm sure you're right. But it's mm. obviously something that's passed me by because I, I don't really remember where that comes in. That's interesting. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look it up. I think it's just... Yeah, it's just in when when he's beginning to talk with Clarice and there's the dandelion test and and those kind of things. But right. th another kind of use of numbers that I that I really enjoyed, and this kind of ties into that blog post that I referred to, Phil, that you wrote about scenes. That um, that there's some scenes in in Fahrenheit four five one in particular that are just the tension in them is tremendous, and when he's running towards the river and he hears in his seashell radio that the announcers are telling people, get ready to look out your windows and it's counting down from 10 or counting up from 10. I can't remember. Um, yeah. I just love the tension in that scene as he's trying to escape, just trying to make it to the river. Yeah. Yeah. It's tremendous. There, there's a number of passages in, in the book, which um, I, I kind of get the impression that, um, and I think I said this in the, the blog post that Bradbury would write a scene and rewrite it and rewrite it. And, once he'd reached a kind of a level of perfection with that scene, that scene would kind of go unchanged while he redrafted the entire book. So you'll find that certain, mm. if you like, diamonds or, or pearls will 
um, emerge as these sort of finely polished things, even while he's still revising um, the manuscript as a whole. And in the case of Fahrenheit, I think there, there are probably about five or six scenes that have been really, really polished. Mm-hmm. And I think anybody who adapts the book um, for film has got to take those those key scenes um, because they it's almost impossible to Im- to improve upon them. Um, I've just found this, the section where you're talking about the days of the week, by the way, and um, yeah, it's there. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven days. The firehouse. It says. So, yeah, so that passage is there. And this is the weird thing for me that I've read this book probably 20 times over the years. And every time I dip into it, I find things that I think, oh, I've not noticed that before. Mm-hmm. And, and that is one of those passages. So that's very good. But I, I, for me, it's, it's about the kind of um, the fact that Clarice has come into his life and has changed his world. Um, and the days are now rushing by. Um, mm. Do you know what I mean? It's, a, it's kind of a... Yeah. Um, the, the the repetition of daily life disappears. Yeah, I, kind of, I kind of took it almost as um, as he is normally life just passes him by as a blur, and now he's yeah. kind of noticing the passage of time. Yeah, yeah. Because because the, the the his talks with her are marking those times. Yes. Well, further thoughts from Colin or James on the book? Any any passages you really liked? Anything anything else? Well, I mentioned. You know the character of Faber talking about you know why books are important and what they bring and what we're kind of missing now because uh, people aren't reading. I really really mm-hmm. enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. I will probably read this book again. Peter liked reading the book, uh, which for you know something. I guess it's I'm thinking stereotypically that you know uh, that young people won't enjoy literature or, or books of class, and that's a bad characterization. <laughs> yeah, and this one's brief enough. I feel like it's it's not onerous to to assign it as a task to read. Of course, then, you know, we get back to what we were talking about before, where assigning a book to read makes you want to dislike it. Not yeah. want to read it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it's a chore in that case. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think one of the things that makes it difficult for um, young people to read is that it is full of quotations. And if, you, if you're confronted yeah. with a quotation and you've no idea what it's about because you, you've never seen it before... That can be a bit off-putting. But, of course, that's the whole point of these quotations. Most of them are things that have, uh, if you like, come into uh, Montag's consciousness, and he doesn't know what they mean. And there's a whole section, um, I think, when he first sits down to read a book um, with Mildred, they read a passage from um, Gulliver's Travels. And it literally, mm. it literally makes no sense to them, and they discuss it afterwards. What, what, what was that? What have we just read? I've no idea. It made yeah. no sense, and and that's the whole point of these um, quotations: is that they can be very profound things, but at the same time they hit you in the face as being um, literal nonsense. Uh, but I think yeah. so. I think that can be a a, a challenge for um, like a high school kid who's given this to read they think what are, what are all these quotations i don't understand any of this yeah james anything final thoughts on the book uh no i don't think so are you, are you thumbs up on the book did you enjoy it this time through yeah i think so i enjoy i enjoyed reading it in the story so i don't know i don't know what else <laughs> to say <laughs> all right well maybe we should move on to the movie then um phil do you know if there were were prior attempts to adapt the book not because it's 13 years after publication, right? Yeah, there weren't any serious attempts. I mean, there, there, there was there was sort of idle talk and 
people discussing it, but I don't think there were any serious attempts. And it took Truffaut probably something like five or six years to finally get the film made. So it, um, I mean, he, I think he came to it in about 1962 or something like that. So it was, it was probably about 10 years after the book had been published um, that he first seriously expressed interest in it. And then it took him a number of years um, to get the financing and the casting and all of that. He has a pretty ambitious casting uh, request, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jane Fonda and Paul Newman. And yeah. <laughs> uh, I can't remember who was oh, supposed really? to play uh, Clarice. <laughs> wow. Um, wow. Yeah, I've forgotten now. There's a whole whole list of people who might have been in it at, at one point. Um, and I, I, the original conception of it, because I, we should say that the, the filmmaker who made it, Francois Truffaut, is French. Um, and originally he was going to make it in France as a French film. And so it would have been oh. a very low-budget film. And his original casting would have had um, Charles Aznavour as um, the fireman. I don't know if you, you know who that is. Uh, he's, if he's known today, he, it's mostly as a singer, I think. But um, back in the late 50s and early 60s, he was a, a, a French film star. Um, hmm. And it would have been a very different thing to, to what we now have. Might have been better. I don't know. <laughs> Phil, are you, are you familiar with uh, Truffaut's career? Yes, fa- fairly well. Yeah. Okay, we we, we got a, a Twitter uh, a tweet from um, the Sci Fi Agenda, who said that Truffaut is the most interesting aspect, as it's not what you would expect from him at that point in his career. And I don't yeah. know enough about his career to know why that would be. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, when when he started, he was kind of making these these little social realism films. Um, I mean, his first film, uh, The 400 Blows, was kind of a, a little f- film about a, um, a, a teenage boy, a young teenage boy who kind of gets lost and ends up in the, in the prison system um, and then runs away. So it's, it's, it's a very intimate little film. And then immediately after that, he made a film which was based on an American noir novel and then after that, he did Jules A. Jim, which is about, um, it's a historical story, um, about a menage a trois. So his, his choice of topics was all over the place in his early career. Um, hmm. and it, it really got him noticed. But, um, yeah, so Fahrenheit 451 would have been a very odd film, um, for him to have made. But every film that he made was odd until he sort of built up a, a huge catalogue and then he began to sort of follow a familiar path. Um, but in, in his early career, he was doing stuff all over the place. That's interesting. Do you, do you happen to know how much uh, interaction he had with Ray Bradbury in the making of this movie? Um, they met a number of times um, and he did express interest in having Bradbury write the screenplay, uh, but Bradbury declined because he'd hmm. By this time, Bradbury had tried doing the stage play of Fahrenheit, the one we referred to earlier, where he more or less just typed out the book as a play. Uh-huh. Um, so he was kind of burnt out on it. So he mm. didn't want to do the screenplay. Um, but Truffaut oh, okay. and Bradbury became firm friends. They corresponded for years and they, they always wanted to work together again, but it, it never quite worked out. Um, but yeah, they, they, they were good friends. Okay. I did. Um, I watched a little bit of the feature commentary on the DVD version mm. that I had. 
And they had an interview with Ray Bradbury, a little five minute piece, and he yeah. did mention that he spent he spent some time with the the director, but it didn't really he didn't really give a concise statement to how much influence he had on the movie hmm. except for that he did he did he did recommend leaving out the atomic war part of the book <laughs> yes that that's and focusing more on the the story of the censorship and the banning and the burning yeah that that seems to to have been the the limit of his involvement he'd he'd reached a, bradbury had reached a point in his career where he was really ambitious for his works to be filmed by the best filmmakers in the world and he he sort of he wrote a, a list of people like kurosawa and fellini and david lean mm. you know he wasn't oh, interested wow. <laughs> he wasn't interested in b-movie directors he wanted the best and for Truffaut, who was at the time um, the top name in in French cinema, um, to get Truffaut interested was a real feather in his cap. But he, Bradbury, always had this belief that if if I'm doing the screenplay myself, then I'm I do it my way. But if I've sold the rights to somebody else to do it, I must let them do it and not interfere. So he, he was always very clear about that distinction. And because in the case of Fahrenheit, he'd sold it to Truffaut, more or less it was, you go off and make the movie and then bring it to me and I hope it's going to be good. But he, he tried not to interfere. And, okay. and I, think that, I think that's how it turned out as well. Well, why don't we kind of collect some um, thoughts on, on the movie? So Colin, what do you think? I think the biggest takeaway I had in the movie was... I, I originally thought the the acting was horrible. Here were these people <laughs> oh, yeah. kind of walking around, not exactly talking in monotone voices, but there was no animation. There was no emotion. Mm. Um, and I, I think yeah, that's the- an interpretation of what happens when you live in a culture with no critical thinking. They are, they don't even know what their own feelings are. Yeah. Um, and then I was reading the, the preview chapter for the review, which is coming out next month. And that is exactly what someone had brought up. Initially, you may make the mistake to think that the acting is very, very poor. But in truth, this was Truffaut's interpretation of what it would be like to live in a culture like this. And I'm like, holy smoke. I had a a profound (laughs) thought. (laughs) Well, you'll you'll know there's, I mean, for me anyways, there was a stark contrast between Clarissa's acting and everybody else's acting. And that she was actually smiling, happy, emotional from time to time. Hmm. And and bubbly. As opposed to everybody else. Right. Yeah. 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 Now, Colin, did you pick up on, on Julie Christie playing a dual role? Oh my goodness, yes. I have no no <laughs> conception as to why you would ever do that to the poor lady. I actually uh, don't have a problem with that, but um It was really weird though. It, it does know, make it a little odd. creepier somehow. Um but the, you know, they aged her up so she was twenty, and that's something that Bradbury didn't like. Um, he 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 preferred her to be younger, and I think Phil, mm-hmm. you can confirm in the stage play. I'm assuming she's still young. Yeah, she's uh, she's supposed to be 16 um, in the novel. She when, when asked how old she is in the novel, she says um, 17 and crazy. But then she says, uh, "Well, I'll be 17 next month or something like that." Right. So she's supposed right. to be a precocious teenager. And if you imagine a teenager in the 1950s, they were very different from teenagers today. You know, they were they were less mature than today's mm. teenagers. So Bradbury's conception is that she's this free spirit who hasn't been troubled with um, adulthood just yet. Um, but of course, en- anybody who adapts the novel is tempted to do something else with that character. 
So, yeah, and there's no way that Julie Christie could be a 16-year-old at that stage yeah. uh, of her career. So, yes, yeah, so she's a much older character in the film. It was interesting when, on one of our Facebook comments that we got from, from Maria um, that, Phil, I saw you chimed in on, and too, um, mm. cause she, she remembered that there was a relationship between Montag and Clarice. Yeah. And in reading the book, I always kind of got a little subtext there that was – it just – it creeped me out a little bit, you know, to, to think of that. And of course, you know, I don't want him to be unfaithful to his wife, even if his wife is a piece of work. Mm-hmm. And, um, but you had, you had corrected that. No, in the, in the movie, there it really isn't, isn't anything explicitly that says that they have any kind of relationship. That, that's right. Um, I'm, I, th- I mean, I think it's that if you're looking for it, you might think that it is there. But I think if you, it, if you watch the film and you think that that is there, you must surely think that it's not done very well because they, they never kiss, they never hold hands. You know, there, right. there are a couple of moments that are almost, almost intimate moments, but they're not really that intimate. So if you're watching it and thinking that there's a relationship there, you must surely think that it's a very badly represented relationship. So I think it's more meaningful to say, well, no, they're not really meant to be um, in love with each other. They're, they're just sort of somehow on the, the same wavelength. But I don't think the film represents that very well at all. I think it's really quite confusing. Yeah, and I think the scene where uh, the older lady who gets uh, who immolates herself with her books mm. and Clarice are, they're actually, I think they're stalking Montag at a point following him places. Yes. It almost made it seem the, that their initial introduction and her talking to Montag was very contrived and calculated. Yes. Yes. And, and that's mm-hmm. again, something, something that's never followed through. It, it's set up in that way that you, you begin to think, what, what are they up to? But then it never really uh, explains that. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, they, they do have a relationship, but it's not the – and I know that on the back of the movie it says he's that, – that Montag has a mistress and that it's Clarice. And I, I think they do have a connection, but it's very, very emotional where he, he actually has a chance to be emotionally intimate with someone probably for the mm-hmm. first time in his life compared to what he has with his wife. You know, where they're it's not talking really about. romantic, though, right? I never got the impression it was from a romantic intimacy. Right. No, no, but they're sharing things, very deep things yeah. with one another. Yeah. You know, that mm-hmm. tend to develop into romantic feelings. The book pretty much establishes, too, that these this is a society of people who aren't comfortable with feelings and they're not prepared for it. And yeah. so in the, in the scene in the book where Montag reads the poem and one oh. of one of um, Millie's friends just breaks down because she doesn't know what to, she can't process it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't think that's something necessarily that Montag was looking for. I think just she was a breath of fresh air. Mm. Yeah. Someone that would run up to you and rub a dandelion under your chin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that, that she escapes in the movie. So she survives. And there's never really any confirmation in the book that she indeed did die. That's just the story that's told, but she disappears, right? She's not, yeah. right. as far as we know, she's dead. That's right. But so I didn't have a problem with them keeping her alive. They don't confirm it because he, he's he's constantly soli- soliciting feedback from Millie. Like, have you seen her? Do you know what happened to her? Yeah. You know, he's like really worried about her, but I don't think they ever confirm anything. I yeah. thought Beatty confirmed that he, that he had had her killed because she was a troublemaker. Yeah, he he does say yeah. something to that effect. Yeah, yeah. But again, it's every everything. 
everything Beatty says, how do we know? <laughs> We've only got his right. word for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's not the most reliable of, of sources of information. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So about the movie, I, I really liked the visual style of it. And, and one thing I really liked is that it's pretty low tech. Um, as I, and I think in the introduction, mm-hmm. one of the uh, things that you sent us, Phil, said something about it being kind of on the low tech side. The, the only exception yeah. to that is there's jetpacks because of course there's jetpacks. The jetpacks at the very um, end. <laughs> and, yes. uh, yeah, those, I could have done without that because that, that does not age well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the fact that they didn't have the mechanical hound, right? No. They lost a lot of the science fiction aspects of the book when they adapted this movie. I didn't yeah. really feel like it was a science fiction movie at all, except yeah. for maybe the jetpacks at the end, I guess. Yeah, you're yeah. right. And um, I, I I hosted a screening of this film in a cinema um, a couple of months ago. And as always, when I watch this film, I'm taken by how small the Montag's TV screen now looks. <laughs> um, when the film was made, that, that, was the, that was bigger than any TV you had ever seen. But now you look at it and right. you think, oh, what, what a small TV they've got. So, yeah. you know, te- technology has overtaken the film, really. But when you watch it, you've got to kind of say to yourself, no, that TV, that's the biggest TV I've ever seen. I, I do I do love the the interactive TV part. Linda, you're fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was just awesome. Yeah. Well, and the, and the acting of the people in the in the wall screens. What do you think, Linda? <laughs> Let me just lob a big meatball over there for you. So the mechanical hound is one of those things that, that I feel like if we, if, if a remake is going to be made, I'd like to see that done. I, mm. I can see why it was, why they chose not to do it in 1966. Cause it would technologically, it would have been sure, hard to pull yeah. off. And yeah. so I, I respect the fact that they went, oh, no, let's not do that because that'll be hard to do. Um, and, Bad effects can pull you out of the movie. Yeah. Um, but it is definitely something that I'd like to see put back in. I wonder if in a remake they could pull yeah. Faber back in too. <laughs> sure. I, I kind of think that if you were trying to do the novel um, justice, I think you'd have to have Faber in there in some way because you, yeah. um, if you think of the I way the characters – Yeah, if you think of the way the characters are sort of designed as opposites, you've got Clarice and Mildred who are kind of – opposite forces pulling on Montag. And then you've also got Beatty and Faber who are opposite mm-hmm. forces pulling on Montag. So he's being pulled in four different directions. And if you leave out any one of those, then the forces pulling on Montag are no longer finely balanced. Um, and I think right, dramatically sure. you, you need a fine balance there so that he can then make his decision because whatever decision he makes is breaking out of that balance and striking out on his own. Mm. If you don't have that balance, then it's as if he's going to automatically slide in one direction rather than another, and that takes away the yeah. decision from him. So, yeah, I would hope that Faber would be back in there somehow, preferably not speaking through right. an earpiece, though, because I think that's clumsy. <laughs> right. Sure. I, I, I feel like, though, um, the, the book also talks about kind of what you're talking about, that, that equilibrium, where even after Montag has the seashell in his ear or the sorry what did they call it the bullet in his ear green bullet um, um yeah where where faber was talking to him you know he expressed look i don't want to just do things that i'm told to do i want to strike out on my own um mm-hmm. and so i liked that where he's i've made this decision but did i really make it or was i yeah. forced into it yeah definitely faber was a, was something missing from from the movie somehow the movie to me felt a little more 
gradual and I don't, I can't even really describe it. I, the book, I felt like Montag switched very quickly. Like he turned very quickly into, um, becoming a criminal. Mm-hmm. And in the movie, it, it seemed, it seemed to, I don't know, it presented it as, it seemed to me that his descent had been going on longer. I, I got a point to ask about that actually. In the, in the very beginning when, uh, when Phil, you were summarizing the story, you made it kind of seem apparent that Clarice had transformed Montag, um, like mm. had, had planted the seed and it grew inside of him to turn. Um, but the impression I got from the book was that he was, he was already curious about books before even meeting Clarice, but Clarice was like the tipping point. Yes, you, you're probably right. Yeah, you're probably right there. And that, and then it, this speaks to what Seth was talking about, where in the, the difference between the book and the movie, where the movie was more gradual, like you were saying, and he it took time for him to switch over to being criminal. But in the book, I get the feeling that he had already had those thoughts, and it was already kind of culminating up. And, and Clarice is that tipping point that pushes him over the edge. Yeah, because I, I think um, I think she gives him the the way of thinking. Um, that he wouldn't otherwise have had. So I, I can imagine if she hadn't come along, he, yes, he might have read a few books, but he yeah. probably would not have broken away in the way that he does. Um, right. So yeah, I think the big life. Like she change, presented a path for him. That yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. Yeah. yeah. He reminds me of uh, Bradbury's telling of uh, Beatty's motivation for becoming a fireman. Uh, Beatty actually owned. At least in the stage play, I think, or in a in the the narrative that he wanted to develop for Beatty, owned a large number of books, but he yeah. never read any of them. That's it. And yeah. so here we have Montag, who's a I guess been a collector of books slowly in yeah. the book, um, in the book telling of the story rather. And then you know up comes Clarice and starts to show him, yeah, you know you're not in love with anybody. Are you really happy? Do you like being a fireman? The, the, if um, if we can talk about the play a little bit, um, yeah. what actually what actually emerges in the play? You're absolutely right. He has this huge collection of books which he does not read, and it, it it's as if he's sort of got them out of spite. I I will I will possess these things, but I will deliberately ignore them so that they have no power. But the reason that he got to that position is that he he had some kind of crisis in his life and during that crisis he turned to books for guidance but what he found was that they didn't help him because they were all saying different things every book he looked in you know he would read one that would tell him to do this and another one would tell him to do the opposite and he could not find the answers the answers were there but not the answer he was looking for um and so books were of no help to him during that life crisis, and that's why he turns against them. So, but it's it's interesting that in that version of the story, Beatty, if you like, is what Montag could have become. You know, if Montag had just carried on as a collector and a uh, kind of secretive reader of books, he could have turned into a Beatty character. But he actually has more strength of character and is able to break out of that in a way that Beatty never is able to do. So the, so the play is very interesting, even though it's not the same story. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a, it's a theme from the book that never gets developed in the movie. The idea that Beatty wants to die mm. uh, and maybe die by the hand of a fireman. Yeah. Uh, in, in the movie, uh, Montag kills him out of self-defense because he pulls a gun on him. 
Yes. Right. Yep. Montag shot first. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of revisionist history by authors. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, So, Phil, do you know what what Ray Bradbury actually thought of the film? I think that's the subject of one of your essays in there. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the the essay that I've written for the um, the new Ray Bradbury review is mainly about the play, um, but it's looking at the play as a response to Truffaut's film. So the the kind of the um, the short version uh, of the story is that when Bradbury first saw the film, he loved it. He 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 wrote something like, um, "My book looks at your film." And sees itself. Your film looks at my book and sees itself. So he saw the film as being absolutely um, an adaptation of the book. But over time, as he thought about it and as he sort of started developing his own stage play, he began to see things in the film that he didn't like. Um, and so his stage play is, in my view, a response to the film. Some things he takes from the film. So bringing back Clarice at the end is in the film, and Bradbury liked that, so he used that in the play. Um, but other things he didn't like about the film, and he, try, if you like, tried to correct them uh, in the play. So the play is like a response um, to the film. Huh. Now, is the play being staged anymore? Yeah, it's. Um, have there been it, recent productions? Yeah, there have been quite a few. It, it's it's very popular as a kind of um, an amateur. Um, production there haven't been too many professional productions maybe like one a year or something like that but there are quite a few amateur productions every year um you know colleges and um schools and so on and and drama groups will put it on so yeah it's it's always in production somewhere do you know if the script the stage the play script is available for purchase it is yeah if you go to dramaticpublishing.com you can buy it from there most of Bradbury's plays are available um, from dramatic publishing. Let me see if I had any other questions about the about the movie. There was one thing about the movie that I thought was kind of ludicrous. What's that? And that's to have a man dressed totally in black trying to escape from a city in broad daylight. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he, he was in uniform, you know, he didn't have time to get changed. <laughs> yeah, right. and I guess it's easier to shoot during the day than at night. Yeah, yeah. Um, sure. But yeah, it's just it's very surprising that he did not get caught. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's that was one of Bradbury's criticisms of the film was that he gets away too easily. Um, now in the novel, um, if you think about the way that Montag escapes, he has to get past the mechanical hound. He has to get past these massive boulevards that Bradbury talks about, which are kind of massive freeways where cars hurtle past mm-hmm. at three hundred miles an hour. Um, so he's got these physical obstacles to overcome. He then has this thing where Montag goes into the river and kind of floats downstream for a few miles. But in the film, you see Montag sort of running across a building site, climbing up a building, and then he's in the countryside. <laughs> and it, it's yeah. kind of the, the whole escape is done in, in a very short time. But to me, that's that's just cinema. You know, it's taking away all the padding and just saying we he gets out of the city and he meets these other people. So I, I don't have a problem with that. But Bradbury just found that he got away rather too easily. 
one thing that I really liked, one one scene that I enjoyed in the film was just the whole kind of opening of it that showed the deployment of the of the firemen, and I really liked the the kind of art style of their the fire engine. Um, where it wasn't enclosed, where they were on the outside of it. Um, and I liked the ritualistic way they gear up Montag before he burns the books. And it looks to me almost like a priest putting on vestments. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's very, very kind of ritualized. It is. It's that, that's one of the nice things about it, I think. And, and also the fact that there's very little talking, um, in the, that yes. early section. It, it really goes straight into a, a, a visual, um, representation of what's going on and it, it it makes sense you know it doesn't need anybody to tell you what's happening you can see it um so so it is very good in that respect did you also notice um when montag is heavily into reading books he's wearing this bathrobe which makes him look like a monk <laughs> do you notice that yes <laughs> oh so yeah now that you mention it yeah it, so again that, that's a, a an unstated thing. It's just something, something that you, you might notice in passing or, or maybe not even consciously notice it. But when you look through the sort of publicity stills from the film, that, that's quite a popular image is to show, um, Montag standing there holding these books and, and looking like a monk as if he's now devoted, uh, to these sacred texts. Well, one other thing I noticed that, you know, I think is more on the positive side, and it was very subtly worked in, was after Montag starts reading books, he never uses the fireman's pole again. He walks mm. into the, the firehouse and tries to go up, and it doesn't work. And so he walks over and goes up the stairs. And he never goes up or down the pole after that. Yeah, It's almost like he lost his uh, blessing to be a fireman after he read a book. Right. Yeah. That's right. It, it's as if the technology has taken against him. Yeah, which I thought was a nice nod back to the mechanical hound. Yeah, yeah. So um, one thing that I think Phil mentioned earlier was when Montag originally starts reading, he's reading David Copperfield, and he really is reading like a child, which to me makes a lot of sense. Uh, this society, it seems like they would be functionally illiterate. Mm -hmm. um, so know right. how to read, but, but it's not like they practice it very much. And hopefully we're not heading that way. <laughs> though, though I, I, I worked with a guy who proudly told me that he had never read a book. <laughs> I once had a student who told me he was writing a novel um, and he asked me if I would be interested in reading it. And so just as part of casual conversation, I said to him, yeah, what kind of books do you read? And he said, well, oh, I've never read a book. I've never read a novel. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he was trying to write one, never having actually read one. It's just bizarre. Wow. Wow. You know, I'm not so worried about us losing the ability to read books just to spell the words in them correctly. <laughs> True. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, the, the, the absence of text in the film, um, that it begins with these spoken credits that we see, um, when we see into BT, uh, sorry, the fire chief's, um, filing system we see that the drawers don't have letters on them they just have numbers and when he takes the files out of the drawers all that's in the files uh, are photographs and symbols right. there are, there are, and numbers there, there's no writing in there at all so the film takes away not just books but text itself and kind of saves it up so that we only get to see text when books are being burned and when Montag starts to read. And when we see Montag reading the book, as I said before, we follow his finger as he stumblingly reads every word. And the camera goes closer and closer 
and closer. So we start off seeing the whole page, mm-hmm. and then we see a sentence, and then we follow word by word as he reads. So it's as if we're we're becoming drawn into the text just in the same way that he is. So, and and for me, that's probably the best scene in the film. Um, and it's not in the book. That scene is not in the book. There, there's kind of equivalence to it in a way. But the film has Montag reading entirely on his own. He's the only person there. And he uses the TV set as a reading lamp, which I think is terrific. (laughs) Yeah, I like that too. Yeah. That's about all it's good for. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I think we're about ready for final thoughts on on the book, about the movie, and we can rank them. Well, I I have a question. I, I have a question. Go for it. We've had some comments about the acting. What what is your view of the the performances that you saw in the film? W- were you comfortable watching the film? Did it did it annoy you? How, how did you feel? For me, I I didn't notice anything in particular that stood out as as bad acting. I I I enjoyed kind of from that first scene where you have any dialogue where the captain is talking to Montag and he says and he's using the third person. You know, what does Montag do on his weekends? Oh, mow the grass. And, and if the government outlaws it, just wash it grow, sir. Um, <laughs> it set a tone for me that, that worked. And it, it kind of told me something about that society, that there was an economy of words, which makes sense. Hmm. Um, and, and especially since leading into that, there was very, I'm not sure there were any words. Yeah. Um, yeah. So no, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't have a problem with, with the acting at all. Okay. That's interesting. What about you guys? I think at first I thought the acting was deadpan until I realized what was going on. <laughs> and then I then I kind of came to that same perspective that, okay, this is how they're supposed to be, uh, with the exception of Clarice, who's actually you know projecting emotions and delivering something. Yeah. So and then it started to make sense. But it took me a while to get there. Mm. Yeah. For me, pretty much like James, like I already said, um, if I hadn't thought that maybe that their their deadpan, their woodenness was due to the fact they lived in a society where they couldn't read about other people's emotions, uh, I may not have may not have gotten that. And I think that's one disadvantage that it had uh, the movie has over the book in that for the book you're looking f- you're not you're seeing more into the characters I think in the book right mm. yeah you're told mm. Montag is frantic or panicked or afraid. Mm-hmm. And it's so deadpan that that doesn't come across in the movie very well. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that, that's one of the chief differences, really, with the film is that um, the the book, although it's it's all written in the third person, we're really following Montag all the time. It's as if uh, the, the the camera in the book, if you like, is sitting on his shoulder, so we're we're with him uh-huh. sort of every minute of every day. Um, mm-hmm. The film, obviously, the camera is is more objective. It's more outside. Uh, of Montag, um, right? But the, the it it there is this thing of how how on earth do you properly represent what um, total illiteracy would do to people? And I, I think that's mm. I I like to think that that's what the film is getting at. Um, although I do fear that some of the some of the performance business is really just bad directing, because the filmmaker mm. only spoke French. Truffaut only spoke French, and here he's got this oh, wow. cast mostly oh, wow. of British actors and a German, an, an, sorry, an Austrian actor in the lead role. 
um, <laughs> how could he possibly have known whether those performances were any good because he didn't understand the English that they were speaking? So, but I, I like to think that it was planned, <laughs> <laughs> right? But I fear, I fear it's a mixture of two things, really. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. nicer than the alternative. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, so by way of kind of wrapping up here, it's to me, it's it's pretty ironic that a book that is about censorship and the consequences of illiteracy and that kind of stuff tends to be a banned book at times. And I found uh, I'm. I'm conflicted as to whether I should link to the article or the blog post where I found somebody who's very critical of the book. And I think it was why I hated Fahrenheit 451. And the author went into some detail about he, he had a real problem with Bradbury's use of the term minority when, when, um, Beattie is, is going through talking about how we began to book, burn books. And he talked mm. about, um, different, different subsections of society, um, wanting to, to get rid of things that offended them. And, you know, that kind of thing does go on here. And, and I don't think that Bradbury was necessarily talking about specific minorities. I think he was saying just yes. in general, there are yeah. pockets of people who have varying opinions and you can't please all of them and you shouldn't try. And the problem with this society is, is that they did try. They tried to say, okay, you know what? We're not all equal. We're going to make ourselves all equal. Nobody can be offended. So anything that offends anyone, get rid of it. And that, yeah. that's a terrible idea. Yeah, and, and this is one of the, the ironies. And I, and I think this is a bigger problem with the play than with the novel. I, th- I think you're right. He uses the word minority, but he doesn't, doesn't mean it in the way that we tend to use it today. Today, when we talk about minorities, it's kind of assumed that we mean ethnic minorities or religious minorities or, or, or whatever. So it, it's, we kind of assume it's a particular type of minority. And in the novel, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about any kind of minority that tries to gain control on behalf of everyone else. So it's minority with a small m, very definitely. By the time he wrote the play, which was in the late 70s and early 80s, the meaning of the word had come more to what we use the way we use it today so i think the play for me is a little bit more problematic because it does sound as if bt is ranting about minorities with a capital m but mm. certainly in the novel that's not that's not what he means uh there was um let's see i was looking to try and get to your your website phil there's something called the big read and and you, i think you were lamenting that that fahrenheit 451 had been dropped from it yeah it's um uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the organisation, the National National Endowment for the Arts, is it? Um, that yeah, runs the, the Big Read. Yeah, um, and it, I mean, it, it seems it's been a very successful program across the whole of the US for a number of years. And Fahrenheit four five one was always one of the the centerpiece books uh, of the program to the to the point that Bradbury made uh, uh, a. Sh- short video that it introduces Fahrenheit and explains it to people. Um, so yeah, it's just a bit disappointing to see that they've now dropped that book from the list. But, um, you know, there are lots of books out there that deserve to be read. So we can't be too upset yeah, as long true. as they, as long as they've put good books uh, in place of Fahrenheit. It does make me wonder about the kind of long-term, um, future of Fahrenheit 451 as a novel, if if people are not going to be exposed to it as much as they used to be. Um, I, I think that's sad if, if it's going to disappear or fade away. Um, 
Yeah. But I, I don't think it necessarily will. Yeah. And on that note, it's probably good for the book in the long run if we get another adaptation of it, because that, that may put fresh eyes onto it. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. And I, I was going to circle back to talk about what we'd l- want to see from from a remake, but I think we kind of already covered that. We wanted to see some things restored to it um, that mm. were not in the, the original film. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I for one, would not um, miss the mechanical hound. So if if the, the next version leaves out the mechanical hand, hound, I'd be quite happy with that because I don't mm. think it's that necessary. Um, but I have a lot of friends who think that it's absolutely fundamental to the novel. So mm-hmm. I'm, I don't mind well, it so being in there either. One, yeah. For that one scene what, that you were talking about, about the chase, you know, the mechanical hound really does weigh heavily on that scene. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and so having, having it, um, paralyze his leg or, or disable his leg and then the other one coming after him, it, it could be substituted with some other technology. You know, today it would be a drone. Yeah. That would yeah. be going after him. I'm mm-hmm. sure. Well, they use the people on jetpacks. It, right. It's in a way it's, it's a substitute, <laughs> right? Which not a good call. Well, I think just a more a more complex chase scene would probably be more uh, uh, appropriate. Yeah, I suppose yeah. not necessarily the hound, but something else that makes it seem like a an actual feat mm-hmm. that he made it. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. need to take a couple scenes from um, the Will Smith movie, Enemy of the State. Right. <laughs> oh, some good chase scenes in that one. Yes. <laughs> well. Why don't we rank them? And I, I think I know how this is going to go. But um, <laughs> you think you want to start with? How about <laughs> Phil? Phil, would you like to go first? Do you do you prefer the book or the movie? I prefer the book, definitely. Um, the film to me has got some fantastic bits, but it is not a great film by any means. The scenes that I think are very very good are the the old woman burning. I think that is beautifully done and that is lifted almost directly from the novel um the the scene where montag reads for the first time i think is terrific the scene where he burns his own house and kills the fire chief i think is pretty good and there's one tiny scene towards the end of the film where you see an old man teaching a child to memorize a book and it's it's only about a minute yeah. and a half long but it's it's fantastic um the rest of the film is not so great. The, all of the book burning material <laughs> looks beautiful. Um, and that's one of the great ironies mm-hmm. of the film is that you come away thinking that was great seeing those books burn. <laughs> and obviously that's not how you should be feeling. <laughs> right. Yeah. I remember being kind of mesmerized by one of those scenes where the pages were folding up like flowers, like, right. yeah. like um, they said yes. in the book. I, th- I think I agree. For me, the visuals of the book burning was probably the best part of that movie because they did those scenes really well. Yeah. And I thought the fire engine scene, Seth, were super corny. They, they looked like they were recorded oh. at slow speed and then they fast forwarded up. They looked terrible. Well, they probably were. Yeah. I, I didn't I didn't mind those. I, I thought um, the film could do with, with some substitutions of score um, because the the music that accompanied every time the fire engine went out was very 1966 <laughs> to me. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so when, when I compare it to something like, um, you know, from just two years later, Planet of the Apes had that very kind of surreal soundtrack and, and score. Um, I think, I think the movie could have done, if, if they do a remake, I'd like to see a, a good, you know, Hans Zimmer score or something. <laughs> right. Well, James, uh, you rank them. My book movie. 
All right. And Colin, need I, need I ask? <laughs> yes, I, book movie. Although maybe not as big as a gap as some people would think. Right. Yeah. I mean, I enjoyed the film, but, but I think, I think I will probably go back and, and reread the book again in my life. And I don't know that I'll go back to the film. Yeah. That's kind of mm. how I feel. I would, I would be interested in seeing some sort of a uh, modern remake of it, I think, which yeah. apparently is on the horizon. Absolutely. The, I, the last we heard was that uh, back in April, uh, H- HBO announced that they were making a film of it mm-hmm. uh, to be written and directed by a guy called Ramin Barani, um, mm-hmm. who, who I'm, I'm aware of. I've not actually seen any of his works, but I'm, I'm aware of the sort of critical um, – his works have been well-reviewed in the past, so he, he seems like a good mm-hmm. person to do this, although he's not at all a science fictional person. So I think it'll be um, – it might be very interesting from a dramatic point of view, but I'm I'm not counting on there being too much science fiction uh, in this version of it. But it it has the potential to be pretty good. You know, the the book itself is not overly science fiction based. I mean, with the exception of the mechanical hound and the memory enhancement techniques for memorizing books mm-hmm. and recalling everything you've read, mm-hmm. most of it is dramatic. And the little earbuds. Well, yeah, seashells. Yeah, unless you want to go. If you want to go with the the more kind of um, Harlan Ellison description of, of science fiction, right? The consequences of technology. Right. It's very much science fiction because it's talking about the the proliferation of these other media and what do they do to a society. And so mm-hmm. I feel like that's very science fiction, not so much in nuts and bolts, but just in consequences. Right. Don't forget the the wall screens, the immersive um, wall screens, are right. really central. To, to telling the story if you're going to tell it in the same way that it's done in the book. And also, if you're doing the book, you've got to have the end of the world at the end of the film, you know, which Truffaut's film doesn't yeah. have. In Truffaut's film, <laughs> this is the, the weakness of Truffaut's film. These people go off to the woods to memorize books. But why? Why are they doing it? Yeah, and then what? <laughs> Civilization doesn't yeah. come to an end. As far as we know, civilization continues. So what you've got is a group of people in the woods talking to themselves about books. <laughs> so it's, when you're watching the film, I don't think you were particularly aware of that. You just think, yeah, that's what happens in Bradbury's novel. And it's only afterwards that you think about it and you think, what were they doing? Why were they bothering to yeah. memorize these books? It's really quite bizarre without the end of the world element uh, in there. So, And that's, that's a science fictional concept, really, the end of the world. That is. Well... Uh, I think we're about wrapped here. So, Phil, thanks so much again for joining us, and um, thanks for. I know you have to stay up late to to join us if we if we don't start early in the morning. So, we really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you're welcome. You, thank you very much. Yeah, I've I've enjoyed this, and as I've said before, if you if you want me back on for to do anything else, such as the Martian Chronicles or the Illustrated Man, I'd be very happy to come back <laughs> on. <laughs> Sounds good. Th- those are two I'm already familiar with, which is good. Oh, good. Yeah, we'll definitely drop links in the show notes to to Bradbury Media. And also to wherever you can pre-order the mm. new Ray Bradbury re- review, which is a lot of R's to say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're going to talk about what we're doing next because we're not totally sure. I'm leaving the country, so uh, we'll we'll figure that out and right. post something on Facebook. Just because you leave the country doesn't make you right. True. All right. Well, uh, I guess we will sign off then, and uh, we want to, of course. Say thanks again to Phil and thanks to everybody for listening. Um, I did want to say thanks to Roger Anderson from the Kitchen Counter podcast because he had asked us to cover Fahrenheit 451 a really, really long time ago when we first connected on Twitter. Oh, nice. 
And um, Colin and I were talking to to Roger a few weeks ago, Phil, because he lives in Oregon as well. And um, and he he was saying, "Hey, that guy you had on from England when you talked about a Sound of Thunder, he was great." So <laughs> um, so I'm sure he'll he'll be excited to hear this episode. Oh, good. I hope so. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll sign off then, um, and I'll sign off with uh, the Fahrenheit four five one pavement pounders blessing. May the road rise up to meet you, and may you read many many books. <laughs> Very good. All right. Bye, everybody. Do you have the answer, Linda? In the blue room? Linda, you're right. She's right. Linda, you're absolutely fantastic. Let me look it up real quick. You should probably just edit that out. <laughs> probably, well, I'll definitely, I'll definitely make it sound like I, I knew it right off the top of my head. No, I won't. <laughs> As you're madly, madly scrambling for IMDb. Um, I don't think so. I think we've covered everything that there is. I, I'm just thinking that if they do do another version of Fahrenheit 451, you're going to have to revise this podcast, aren't you? No, I think we'll just do a, a quick conversation with you on it. How about that? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like we did with the Jurassic Park, new Jurassic Park movie. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, yeah. an addendum. Yeah. Published as <laughs> a separate episode. Yeah.